I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Drop your shoulders, take a breath, tune into how you feel, because it's time to stretch. I'm Sinead Moore, and this season is here because of the support of Vitabiotics, my season four sponsor. From Pregnacare to WellKid, WellWoman and WellMan, they have a product range to support us throughout every stretch of life. When I was thinking about this podcast, I wanted to make sure it could explore topics beyond just bump and baby. Because as I move further away from that particular life stage, I can see how complex the new stretches become. When I was packing my hospital bag, I wasn't concerned with children's mental health, but now I am. And even more so since July, when the Mental Health Commission published their final report on child and adolescent mental health services. And let me tell you, if you are not concerned, you should be. Because they openly announced they cannot currently provide an assurance to all parents or guardians in all parts of Ireland, that your children, our children, have safe access to effective and evidence-based mental health service. Families going through this know this. They welcomed the report because it validated their experience. They wanted others to know the reality, and so do I. Because together we can use our collective voices as parents to demand change to safeguard children that need support now and in the future. So we have to talk about it. As the first generation of parents who are openly talking about their own mental health, we need to advocate for our children's too. To help us understand what's going on, what's going wrong, and what we can do to impact and create positive change, I'm joined by Niall Breslin, or Brezzy, musician, mental health advocate, creator of Where Is My Mind podcast, co-founder of A Lust for Life, a charity that supports young people to be effective guardians of their mind. Brezzy is a powerful and honest voice and the person I needed to have this conversation with. Niall Breslin, Brezzy. How are you? How official are we going today with the title? Oh, as official as you want of a Wednesday. Doctor with the PhD? Not quite yet. Not quite yet. It's a few years, hopefully, I I can throw that in front of my name, but I'd say I have another four years of that hustling first. Well, thank you for doing your hustle because we need you to do it. We need your voice. We need you to be 
standing out there in media talking about mental health. Um, your work has personally supported me through your podcasts, but also through your advocate voice, because you're raising issues that sadly can become news headlines and then disappear. Mm -hmm. But it's too often. And my blood ran cold two weeks ago when I saw the CAMS report and the findings of such. And I heard you speak about it. And I heard you speak about how the headlines disappeared so quickly. Mm -hmm just gone this massive piece of news that impacts our children and it's just gone well actually i think by sunday in the i was on brendan o'connor's show to review the newspapers and i was handed six papers and i found a tiny little paragraph about the cams report and hugely and rightly so coverage of sinead's passing and not really putting two and two together there you know, the reality of a failed mental health system. And before we start around CAMS, right, we have to use this as an opportunity. We It becomes too overwhelming to view it as anything other than an opportunity or a stake in the ground. It's my stake in the ground for my my study and my research. But if this is not something that that you can stand up for, whether you're a parent or not, then we're in trouble. This has to be the stake in the ground. And a lot of people won't know what was in the essence of that report. And I can certainly bring elements of it forward and summarize it and, and kind of give you the idea of where we're at. But this isn't overnight. I've been researching nearly, nearly 200 years of mental health intervention in Ireland. And, you know, we've never had this right. These reports that we're reading now were reports that were coming out in 1966. It's because no one gives a shit about it. That's why it's not a it's not politics. I don't believe politicians don't care about this. I just think it it scares them to death because for so long, medical science has kind of not really been able to grasp this because they've come at it purely from a biological point of view. And we have to come at this in a new way. And I think that was one of the recommendations in the CAMS report. We need to start looking at other models of care for children, especially for children. You know. These are developing brains. These are, this is an opportunity to affect them for the rest of their lives by intervening or assessing and helping them young. So yeah, I'll get into the report, but we need to see this as the opportunity to change things. Otherwise, we're going to be having this conversation in 50 years. Why are they scared of it? Because they don't understand it. And your issue with mental health, you cannot talk about psychology and mental health and psychiatry unless you're willing to talk about the social forces that come around it. Like in Ireland, historically, by 1950, Ireland had the highest level of people in psychiatric institutions in the world. We just loved throwing people into institutions. We just loved it. We did it to mothers. We did it to children. And we did it to people who might have been a bit different, who might have not been conventional. And it was at times barbaric. That's the, the history of institutionalization in Ireland. So what we always done in Ireland is we, we bury shame. We don't like shame. Mm. So we bury it and we get rid of it or we put it somewhere else where we don't have to see it. And there's legacies that still prevail from those systems in our current system. And unless we're willing to address those legacies, we are not going to solve the problem. And politicians, I think what happens is they look at this area and it, it scares them because they're probably conditioned the way we've been conditioned. They're, they've been 
dealing with the stigma as much as I have. So some of them don't have the language to talk about mental health. They don't even understand it in any shape or form. And some of them shouldn't, you know, that's not the role. But like, where was our Minister of Health's voice after that? Where was Stephen Donnelly after this? Not a dicky bird from the Minister of Health about a CAMS report that has essentially said, and here's your headline, that Dr. Susan Finnerty, who did an amazing job, said she cannot currently provide an assurance to all parents in Ireland that their children have access to a safe, effective and evidence-based mental health services and silence from our Minister of Health. That's not but good enough. is it not also combined with the media? Why was he not called to answer? Like, why was he allowed, why was he permitted to remain silent? Accountability is just not something that's built into our health system. That's the problem. And listen, Minister Donnelly's had a tough couple of years, regardless of your opinion of the things to deal with. And let's be honest about it. The state mm. has had a really difficult few years with mm. the pandemic and everything that came at it. It couldn't have been easy to govern you know, whatever your view of politics, like I, I certainly wouldn't want to have been a politician over the last couple of years. But and that's not in any way making excuses for for our Minister of Health. But what would probably be said now, I've met four ministers of health in my work four, five, no, so I've met five mental health ministers. And one of them, when I sat down to him, said, what's going on out there? Bressie? He said to me, I went, hold on a sec. You're paid a very good wage to know what's going on out there. It's your fundamental job to know what's going on out there. So I think what's happening is, is mental health has always been the Cinderella of the health system. It always has been because essentially we've never really known what to do. That's another big problem. What do we do with people who are struggling? Generally, unless you start viewing mental health as a spectrum and that spectrum, you move along that spectrum and at the severe end of the spectrum, you see things like psychosis and schizophrenia and personality disorders, really difficult difficult things to work with and treat but generally people don't get there overnight and we have to look at a couple of things in Ireland our societal stigma is definitely eroding society's doing an incredible job they're talking about mental health but really if ever everyone listening to this was really honest with each other are we comfortable talking about the severe end of the spectrum are we, t are we comfortable talking about the things like schizophrenia and things we don't quite fully understand? Or are we just okay with talking about stress and anxiety and these kind of slightly safer places because we all deal with this stuff? So th there's lots that have to happen from a social stigma point of view, but also more importantly, from a, from a systematic point of view. So what does it look like? Before we get to the end of the conversation today, we got to start looking at what does a good system look like? Mm. And we are a population of 5 million people. We are a tiny, tiny little blip. We're the size of Manchester in terms of a population. It is unacceptable that we can't create a case study to be the world leaders in how we support young people when it comes to their mental health. Ireland has an opportunity to do that. It has the people to do that. It knows what to do. We're very good at social change. But if there's no political will, we won't do it. And that's where you gotta you gotta start looking at this. It's it really needs political will to change things. To the men listening, hello. Or maybe there's someone who loves you that's listening. Either way, we deeply need you to feel at your best as we all move through whatever new stretch life is throwing at us right now. And while your bodies might not be the ones who carry birth and feed, your energy, your health, and your well-being is essential to us, our kids, and our futures together. 
Wellman is an advanced supplement range with intelligent formulation designed exclusively for the lifestyle needs of men at every stage of life. With vitamins B6, B12 and copper to support normal energy release, vitamins C, D and B12, which contribute to normal immune system function, and zinc, which contributes to normal reproduction and the maintenance of normal testosterone levels in the blood. You can choose from Original, Plus, which includes Omega-3, Max, with added calcium and vitamin D, 50+, plus, or Sport. With 50 years of innovation in nutritional science, Vitabiotics has been pushing boundaries to help our families feel at their best. With products to suit all stages from preconception, pregnancy, postpartum and family life, with Pregnicare, Well Kid, Well Woman and Well Man, Vitabiotics have created a product to suit every stretch of family life. Vitabiotics want to look after you through their supplemental range and by supporting this season of Stretch Marks. Food supplements must not replace a varied and balanced diet and a healthy lifestyle, and you should always consult your doctor or pharmacist before using. One of the things that I spotted in the kind of the coverage of it was the executive's detailed statement outlines several other initiatives, including an audit of prescribing practices and an audit of adherence to the CAMS operational guidelines. Like, does that not, that to me reads, people have not been following the operational guidelines. So even if there is a political will for change, what's concerning to me is operationally, there needs to be a complete overhaul of change. And where do we find the people, even if we have the will, where do we find the level of resource to ensure that operationally we can, you know, from start, from day one of case to, to the final date of that case, that any child that needs the support of the system can be looked after? How do we get away from the waiting list? How do we get away from these lost cases, which is another alarming uh, quote that was from the, the the media coverage. How do we get to a point where actually it works? Well, so the chief executive of the Mental Health Commission, John Farley, called it correctly when he said we need a root and branch change of camps. Mm. We need to we need to start again, essentially. And he he noted that like one of the primary reasons CAMS was not functioning was there was an absence of clinical and corporate governance an absence of it. Now, mm. just listen to those words. Mm. That is terrifying. You know, for anybody who works in an organization or has sat on a board, like I sat, I sit on the Lust for Life charity board. Governance is just at the core of every single decision you do. You're constantly thinking of it. And we're dealing with children and there's a there's, there's an absence of clinical and corporate governance with children. So, as a parent or a guardian or anyone who has their own people in their life, just listen to those words. And what I say to people when it comes to these types of things, it becomes quite a passive thing for us to do. We go, oh, my God, that's terrible. Wouldn't that be terrible? As best as you can, try to imagine what it must feel like to not be able to get help for your child, like just not be able to get help for them, not get them assessed, not getting an intervention to, to get them better understanding their world how just upsetting that could be. And when you start tapping into that, you start to realize, you know, I hope people listening to this don't need this system. I really hope, I absolutely genuinely do. But there are many young families that do. 
So when you talk about that, right, when you look at the, the findings of the report, like the core findings of the report, gaps in governance, poor risk identification and management with serious risks unidentified and poor or no response when identified, a wide variation in what CAMS teams can provide, resulting in a postcode lottery for parents and young people, a lack of clinical leadership at CHO community and national level, with each team doing what they think is best and not according to standards and guidelines, a lack of central planning to provide child-centered care, even though there's an agreed policy. So you're right. We, we Unless we find another way of doing things, this isn't working. It's not functioning. And I don't call it a system because systems are meant to function. Now, this is the reality where we're at. So we have to draw a line on this now and accept that this isn't working. And John Farley is dead right. It needs a root and branch change of CAMS report. But other things, when you get in underneath the bonnet of that, mm. you're seeing things like psychiatrists in Dubai on Zoom diagnosing children in Kerry, putting them on hardcore medication, not monitoring them on that medication and causing profound issues because of that. Tell me any other area of healthcare where that would be acceptable. And I, That's what you're dealing with. I need to get into like the why, who signed off on that practice? Who believes that that is a safe and dutiful practice for a, a child? Mental health. A minister of mental health believes that tele doctor, whatever you want to call it, mm. was an effect. She, she did it, to be fair to her, to be fair to Mary, she, she did it out of an act of desperation, if I'm honest, because we can't get people to do this work so she goes maybe this is a good thing to do and maybe it would be a good thing to do if you were dealing with something like an ear infection or mm. you're dealing with you know a cold or a flu you're dealing with such intricate complex things which might have a very many different varying reasons it could be family dynamic it could have been a trauma it could have been something it could be the neuro, neuro, neurodivergence it could be all these different things and we're getting a guy in in Dubai jumping on so tell me, for example, why can't we just get a, a psychologist leading CAMS teams? The reason we don't is because the model that runs CAMS is a, is a medical model. It's the first protocol. The medical model, let's be clear, is important. It's part of the process. But unfortunately, it's the it's only harsh. show in town here. It's the only show in town. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the increase in statistics in the medicalization of children globally and the pathologicalizing of what is normal, generally human, for example, We've come out of a, a global pandemic. Yeah. I'm certainly affected by it. I've lost my ability to socialize. I've had all sorts of things happen to me. Think of the children that have gone through that. And our first port of call is to pathologicalize them and say, there's something wrong with you. You, you know, you've a mental health problem. Well, maybe there isn't anything wrong with them. Maybe they need support to process what they've fucking gone through. Maybe they need a little bit of kind of guidance or maybe they need an assessment because they're struggling in school. No, no, let's pathologize. Let's let's diagnose them with a guy in Dubai and put them on medication. And anybody who I can't remember the guy's name, but he was on the hard shoulder news talk. He was the father of one of the children mm. talking about this case. And I had to pull in the car. It was just so upsetting. And as I said before, please don't listen to me saying this stuff going, isn't that terrible? Mm. Think about what it feels like to have somebody on Zoom putting your children on medication and not monitoring them. And as and I said, we're not talking about aspirin. The position of a parent in that, if that's my only option, like if that's my last port of call, these parents, they are banging on the doors. They are screaming for help. And 
if that is the last port of call, I can even feel myself feeling hope with that because mm-hmm. you're desperate. You're desperate to think what this organization is here to do is to find a solution to my child. And I'm passing over trust. I am passing over control. I am asked to do that in so many other capacities as a parent, as I'm trying to raise my child, whether it's handing it over to the school system, handing it over to the obstetrician when I'm in birth, like we're constantly being asked to just pass over control that you Mm. want to think next Thursday when we have that Zoom with the expert in Dubai, that there will be a solution to this, that that is the moment of hope because the waiting list has been so goddamn long that this is the moment that help will arrive. And you can believe that as parents, you just simply want to believe that the person you're putting this trust into is actually going to do their job and is actually here to protect you. And the thing is, they might. Mm. It, but the problem is it's a might is not good enough here. No. This is the point. Like there are there are effective comms teams in Ireland. There are. There's teams doing amazing work. But it's the line saying that I cannot guarantee you safe and evidence-based treatment for your child. It's a postcode yeah. lottery. It's that stuff. And to understand, right, when it comes to the psychology, so my PhD is focusing on the kind of sociology of it. So the systems, the kind of health systems that have allowed this happen, the historical interventions that we've used for mental health. But when you look at the psychology of any psychologist will tell you this, if you can support a child early, if you can assess them early and you can create an environment where whatever that assessment shows us, they're able to be better supported in it. The, the impact that has on the rest of their life is just profound. It is profound. You change their lives. You change the trajectory of their lives. You give them tools. You don't stigmatize what it is they're dealing with. You know, And this is a powerful opportunity to actually start living and developing that. And you know, so the recommendations of the CAMS mm. report, which when I look at, which, you know, when I look at the recommendations from the Mental Health Commission, they're all really important, but they're all very much focused around the kind of strategy and comprehensive policy and all this stuff. We've always, we've had good mental health policy in Ireland. We just haven't implemented it. That's your problem. Yeah. So then one of the recommendations is that it has to be yearly monitored. The mental health system has in the past had yearly monitoring, but it just doesn't happen. So yearly monitoring still isn't enough. Like my child has a has a very small physical issue from birth that she gets checked twice a year and mm -hmm. it's very minor, very minor, will not cause her any issue for her whole life. Twice a year she gets checked in Temple Street. But but, but we're looking at this idea of a comprehensive strategy for CAM. So what does that look like? Who's going to be the person that develops the teams that that develop these comprehensive strategies? There has to be a new approach here. There really has to be a new approach where we don't always believe that a child who is struggling with whatever it might be, anxiety, there's probably a reason for why the child is struggling. And if we can actually guide them through that and give them, so I do a lot of work with with something as simple as mindfulness with children, where you tell them things like, you know, when a child says they're anxious and I tell them there's a little security guard that's just there trying to keep you safe. That's all they're trying to do. And you give them the little tools to deal with it. That's what our schools program at Lust for Life does. So we're in over a thousand primary schools. My belief, and this is only a small belief and my hypothesis and my PhD is that I believe early prevention is something that can disrupt the current mental health system. What does early prevention look like? It's not going to solve every problem. Let's be clear. We're always going to need a crisis model. We're always going to need a model that can better support kids if they get the point of crisis. But 
why can't we slow that wave by teaching kids the tools, using evidence-based approaches, using research? We know through evidence-based that early prevention has a profound impact. And then you have someone like Norma Foley, our education minister, who comes out and says, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put psychologists and therapists into schools. Where are you going to get them? How are you going to recruit them? How are you going to make sure the schools don't have to budget those things? And how, in the name of Jesus Christ, are we going to get people into psychology in third level now? Because the points have gone through the roof. So I feel what politicians sometimes do is make these great ideas. Yeah, of course. Don't they think don't... about how they <laughs> There's no linking of thinking. Like There's none, there's none there. And no. like, like we can't get psychologists, enough psychologists and psychiatrists for the HSC. Yeah. Like for the actual health system. I tell you what, let's put them all in the schools. So, yes, a great idea, a brilliant idea to have therapists and counsellors in schools and a brilliant idea to have early prevention models in schools and in communities. But we have to think really cleverly here and we have to make these types of careers open to to much more people who could be very good at being a therapist, a psychologist or a psychotherapist. The training for that is kind of hard. <laughs> And my partner is a psychologist. You know, they train hard to do that work. So it's like that. It's like, you know, our minister of, you know, coming out and saying we should all drive electric vehicles. And you're kind of going, OK, cool. Great idea. How much are they? And can we actually charge them? You cannot keep telling us to do things without actually putting the proper structures in place. So these are things we got to look at. And we need to be patient as a as an electorate. If if a decision is made in CAMS to actually really restructure it, to do something brave and courageous and leadership by our politicians, as the electorate, we also have to be calm because it's going to take time. It really will. It's going to take a lot of time and we have to start believing in a better system. And as I said, what I hope with my own research is to show like this is how we've done it. Can we all accept as an economy, as a as a society and a community that it hasn't worked. Can we all just accept that? Like, and unless we're willing to accept that, it's not going to change. And I think we need to see that from politicians and we need to see that from, from, you know, I, on the other hand, I also have relative sympathy for the HSC. They've had a shit show of a couple of years as well. And and it's not like, like, and in the report, it does state, you know, complete burnout, and staff like really calling for change, openly saying this is not working, that they cannot do their jobs effectively. It's not a case that this is like for once, actually, I quite admired that it, it wasn't a, it wasn't somebody who had to kind of tell the media what was going on. This was actually a full report that was officially done, comprehensively done. And comprehensively announced and stood over, and that felt brave because that, that was, was brilliant. New. And it was actually a brilliant report. I have yeah. so much admiration for Dr. Finnerty for doing it because she didn't hold back here. No, she was genuinely on the, on the nose here. And I think so. Look at this. Like I'm twisting this again just to tell you that mm. how history repeats itself constantly. When we first opened institutions in Ireland in 18, 1817, so when the British Empire were like, listen. They used to call them the lunatic poor. That's what they referred to, you know, people who were, who insanity or lunacy is what it was called at the time. And that's why they were called lunatic asylums. They opened them up. And initially what happened was psychiatrists or, or, or people running these really had a positive, they wanted to do something. They wanted to give these people a better 
op- option in life. They wanted to make sure, bring them in. It's called, it was called moral intervention, where they were mm-hmm. kind of, let's take them away from where they are. Let's work them through whatever they went through. And then what happened was actually the first institution, Richmond, which is Grange Gorman. Then what happened is they started to use these institutions just like a, a dumping ground for criminals, for anybody or any anything. And they became so overcrowded so quickly that psychiatry was like, we cannot help these people. There's too many of them. We can't give any one of them our, our proper support. And then I initially thought it was, oh, the psychiatrists were doing these terrible treatments. Mm-hmm. But really what they were trying to do is find a better way to, to I think, and there was times barbaric treatments like with the lobotomy and the history repeats itself. Now, I'm not talking, we're, we're in a far better place than we were back then. But the point I'm trying to say is we are now looking at a mental health system that we're trying to fix. We can't get the staff. We can't get the psychologists. We can't get the psychiatrists. And what you're going to see in the next election cycle, just mark my words, the big headline for every opposition politician is we only spend 6% of our our health our our budget on mental health on our, our health budget on mental health and the world health organization says a minimum of 12 or 13% which is is an important enough statistic but actually what's more important and the question you want to be asking is what do we spend that 6% on what is it spent on how effective is that and this is once again the constant conversation we have about our health structures we spend quite a lot of money on our health system. How effective is that? And these are the things we have to ask as taxpayers. And, you know, when you look at your tax bill each month and you realize how much of it goes out and you see a children's hospital costing us two billion, it's your money. And remember that it's your money and you deserve better and your children deserve better. And there is better. That's the the, the most important point I'll make today. There is better. There's a better way of doing this. And there's better people to show us how to do it. We just need the political will and the leadership to actually drive it through now. And my greatest concern when I keep reading the escalating costs of that hospital is what money will be left to actually service it. Because again, mm-hmm. it's that it goes back to that same whole, like you should drive the electric car. I feel like they're building the statement. They're building the, we should have this 2 billion worth of a, ho- of a hospital. There will be no money left to staff it. There will be no money left to actually run it. Well, my my issue as well is is it's the governance that has allowed it become that costly. The control of governance that is what you need. You need you need. It's hard. Like like let's be clear here. People going oh like being government is a hard job. Mm. Like you've so many different things you got to contend with and deal with. And you're you know most of them are well paid and the pensions and all that kind of stuff. I'd rather eat my own shoe than be a politician. But there's a certain level of governance that you expect. And when you're seeing hospitals costing €2 billion, Euro, it's, it's not acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable to the electorate. But then the reality is we then say, well, what's the other option? The other option is we demand better. We demand more accountability for when shit like this happens because it filters down and it becomes acceptable in other parts of our society. It becomes acceptable in our, in our CAM system. It just becomes a standard, you know, and for me, a standard has to be maintained. My background, you know, and Sinead is, I did my degree in economics Mm. and it's, it's the first thing that gets thrown at media when politicians are talking about elections. They talk, you know, is the economy stupid? That's the famous line. And we talk about GDP and growth rates and unemployment rates. 
I can tell you one thing about economics. It's a very blunt instrument on which to judge a society. Judge a society on how we treat our most vulnerable. So I don't really care about our GDP rate when we've thousands of homeless children. I don't really care about our GDP, GDP rate when we have a, a, a dysfunctional mental health system for children. You know, these are the realities that it can be better. You look at Nordic countries and how they operate and how they develop their systems. But the one thing I will say is I, I've done a bit of research. There aren't many countries getting this right before we start getting really angry with Ireland. <laughs> there, there aren't. But why not use that as an opportunity? as a country of 5 million to go, let's be a case study for how we can actually enter. Just so paint this picture. You have a seven-year-old, just say a seven-year-old. The seven-year-old is struggling in school, is very, very anxious, is maybe not sleeping, not maybe socializing with their peers. And you bring them in and you have an assessment by a professional, really great professional. We find, for example, this kid might, might, have, might be neurodivergent in some way. And you're able to create an environment where they're they're supported through that. And you're you're able to do that straight away. So you're not waiting two years for an assessment. Two years is this golden opportunity of brain development. And you're interviewing straight away. And then you're going, right, what systems we have to support this child in the community? And you're doing that straight away. That's life-changing. Changes everything. And why can't we do that? Why is that such a barrier? Why is there such resistance to achieving that? Because when you do assess the child and you do create a better environment for them, whether it's in school, whether it's a special needs assistant, whether it is where they're given therapy support for whatever it is that they're, they're dealing with, it's it's what we should be aspiring to, I think. And I think we can. That's the truth. And I think I know people who work in the mental health system in Ireland that are just some of the most amazing human beings I've ever met in my life. They're so skilled, compassionate, empathetic. They want to do better. But there's just too many barriers in their way. What are your thoughts on us going reverse? Imagine that seven-year-old child, okay? And of course, we cannot, like, I'm excluding the severe cases right now, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm bringing it back to what you said about how as an electorate, as a family, as a population, we must be patient while the system gets reimagined in a new, brave way. Mm -hmm. I believe that we also need to rewind and look at that child when it is born and how that mother was supported mm -hmm. with her mental health, how that family was supported with their financial independence, how that family was supported in terms of the feeling of security when they can provide a home for their child, mm -hmm. when they can feel like they are working hard and there is a safe and accessible childcare system for them so that the stresses of life don't initiate that anxiety. Yeah, that actually when we're all doing our best as adults, we are not only protecting our child from that beginning, but we are demonstrating what it feels and looks like to be an operational society that is supporting those on mass. And exactly. I feel like we need to also as an electorate look at what is going to be coming out in those new cycles around those issues, those topics, because it cannot just be about, you know, we've allowed and as I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm, illness will occur, mm -hmm. but I'm talking about health at a mental level. So what can we be doing as a society to support units mm -hmm. to be able to give these children the best possible opportunity to have good mental health from the beginning? 
It's a really good question. And I think it's it's important. You know, Dr. Mally Coyne, who I've worked with many times, talks about the first 1,000 days and how important they are in, in, a, in a child's mental health development, but also in the parent and the guardian. And I think about that a lot. And I think about, so part of the threads of some of my research, I'm trying to find a thread of like, what was the biggest contributor to Ireland having such a gargantuan relationship with institutionalization? And I keep coming back to the same word, and that word is poverty. And that is why we had such huge, huge levels of institutionalization, in my opinion. And I think poverty and inequality mm-hmm. and these types of things are, are such a crucial component. The social forces that have contributed to why people struggle with their mental health. And even when you look at families and mothers, the idea of, for example, maternity leave and things like that, the stress that comes with that, the, the ex- expectation that we've created because of historical patriarchal systems that, you know, women don't get promoted in jobs because often they go, all this stuff, this feeds into it all. And we cannot have these conversations in silos. That's why it's so hard and so complex and so difficult and overwhelming for politicians to actually go, shit, we've got to do something here. Inequality, inequity, mental health issues, uh, social deprivation, all this stuff. And we're all, we're, all, we're all in that firing line. That's the problem. So I'm sorry for being a little bit kind of br- macro and mad on it, but this but is I the think reality. That, I think that's important, though, because we have to take it away from the individual cases. We yes. have to take it back to how we function, how we literally support individuals on a path of go to school, go to college, or get educated, get a skill, start a job and be yes. able to afford a home. We we are we are lit. If we are in trouble now, imagine the children of the future who are witnessing their parents under this immense stress when the the letter comes through the door from the landlord that says they have to move again, they have to move schools again, they have to yes. move life again. That is that is trauma building and building and building. And it's not a case. I, I believe that we have to obviously be patient and wait for the new system to be support to be created and built. But we also need to look at how we intervene now to try and limit present and future trauma. Well, I, I cannot agree with you more here. So there's a really important essay. Um, I think it's by, um, I think it's Mark Fisher is the name. Yeah, he basically wrote an essay called The Privatization of Stress. That was the essay. And he said that, you know, say all the stuff you just said there, like single hour contracts, uh, really on insecure home situation, all that kind of stuff. And then we have a wellness industry that tells you just to drink more water and, and have flaxseed. Yeah. That's the privatization. Privatize. So the problem is that yeah. you're just not quite resilient enough. Sinead, you're just not quite yeah. resilient. You need to do a resilience. You have to hustle program. more. You need to hustle more. You need to do a mindfulness course. That's what yeah. you should do. That will solve your problems. Yeah. So that's the privatization of stress. We're putting all the individual, all the pressure on the individual. And then you're going into workplaces with 60 hour working weeks that are saying, well, we have a resilience program. So sort your shit out. And that has a profound, don't get me wrong, every individual has their own personal responsibilities and accountabilities. We, we all have to show up. But the way I look at it, after the pandemic, right, I always say this to people, and anyone listening to this, listen to when I say this to you. If you're overwhelmed right now and rinsed and exhausted and a little bit beaten, good, you should be. That's a healthy response to what we've gone through. That is how a human should respond. Don't mask it. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Don't avoid it. Don't listen to people tell you you should be more resilient. 
You're the very fucking definition of what resilience is, the ability to come back from adversity. And I think what we're doing now is creating a society that puts all the emphasis on the individual and nothing on the bullshit policies that are shoved down our faces. I think that is not being idealistic. You can have both. You know what I mean? The, I always say to people, the opposite of capitalism isn't socialism. You can have both. You can have a middle ground. You look at the, the Nordic countries and the so social democracies that they create there. And one of the best lines I ever heard was from Dr. Mike, Mike Ryan, who was had in the podcast, who worked with this amazing Swedish um, economist. And he told him the reason they have basic universal income is because the most dangerous person in any society is a person with nothing left to lose. And Article 24 of the Convention of the Right of the Child by the United Nations says every single child has the right to the highest attainable mental and physical health. And we ratified that in 1992. And we've breached it every single year since. So this isn't about being, you know, political. It, like, I don't really care who's in power if they're making the same decisions and they're living by the same economic ideologies that we, we live by now. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Labour, Social Democrats, there's good people in all those parties. And that's the, that's the point. It need, it, it, we need to get away from it being party and partisan and, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to fix it. I, I don't believe that any one party has the capacity to fix it, whatever it is, when we look at all the, the range of kind of societal issues that need to be tackled in Ireland right now. It has to be a collection of just really good, intelligent, willful people. And but the, but, but the other thing is, like, there has to be an acceptance that change is the most is the only guarantee in life. Mm. Personally, societally change, things always change. And we can be really resistant resistant to change for obvious reasons, because, you know, if we're, if we're all comfortable where we are, we don't want to change anything and move anything. And I get that. I really respect that. I do. I, I find I, even in my own case, I'm like that a little bit. But I think there's going to be things that are going to have to happen that are going to be difficult. But the problem is, and people are right about this. I, I saw I heard someone speaking about it on the radio this morning, you know, telling people things like, oh, you're going to have to get an electric car when they're struggling to buy dinner for their children is a ridiculous statement to make. And we're not all the same and we're not all in, in this together. We all have different, you know, things that we need to deal with. Telling everybody that they got to solve the, the, you know, the climate change issue when they're really just not really focused on it right now because they're, they're struggling to pay rent. They're struggling to get out of bed some mornings because they feel they're just so tired from the world. You, these are all things that we can't do in silos. And that's why what what we did with Lust for Life is we looked at what really does work in Ireland, what we're really good at. And what we're really good at is education. We are brilliant at it. We have the best teachers in the world. We have the best system, I think, one of the best systems in the world. We we have a really bright population. We have a really curious population. And we got to tap into that. And that's what Lust for Life wanted to do. Was like sometimes in activism, people focus too much on what doesn't work rather than to focus on what does work and to tap into that. So I believe the education system has the ability to, to really support the health system in a much more profound way. But this is not on the teachers. This is not their jobs. They have enough to do. Back to the same thing, making a big lofty point of going, we're going to put wellness programs into schools without actually resourcing the schools, budgeting the schools, giving them the full infrastructure to deliver that without any excuse. 
is is what you got to do. And it's as I said the same thing about Eamon thing he's saying like we all need to get electric cars. Mm. Or we all got to use public transport when you mm. live in when there isn't any and there's no buses. Mm-hmm. It's that stuff. It's making these big moment, these big kite flying statements, and not backing them up with actually the reality of our structures and our systems. And in a country that's as wealthy and as successful and as respected, genuinely respected. Mm-hmm. I've been in America many times the last three or four years. They really respect us here, generally. And I think we should respect ourselves too. I think I, I'm a proud Irish person. I, I always will be. I'll live here for the rest of my life. But I, I, I just think there's better. There's far better. There's better people mm-hmm. able to do better things around our CAM systems and our mental health systems. And, you know, when I see people like Dr. Tony Bates, who set up Jigsaw, and his knowledge and understanding, and I'm like, well, why isn't he in the room? Why isn't Mm -hmm. all these other people in the room? And it doesn't always have to be psychologists and doctors. You know, giving, giving, in history, giving only monopolizing a voice to the medical world is not wise. We need to have different voices here. And we need to have them respectful. I sat in the mental health task force a couple of years ago. And I might as well have been watching fucking friends at home. Genuinely, it was a talking shop. That's all it was. It was a mm-hmm. statement to make. Look good. Nothing was done. Um, so these are the realities. Don't lose faith. Why do you think the political parties or the leaders, I should say, like it's not about the parties. Why do you think the leaders are so reluctant to invite relevant, expert, innovative voices into the solution? I'd say for an abundance of reasons, I'd say one of them is that they don't believe change can actually happen. So whatever these experts suggest or find, they won't be able to follow through on them. Because as John Farley said, in its current guise, it won't work with CAMS. So that that, I think what needs to happen before we start putting in these teams of people to develop and also research has to happen. This is important. Research is really important. There's no point in thinking we know what the answer is. We need to put some serious effort into the the resourcing of this. And when I talk about research, research, I'm not just talking about medical research or psychological research. I'm talking about sociological research. I'm talking about other areas of research that should feed into this. Like you said, things like inequality and poverty. What impacts that having on kids? How can we better support kids in desh schools? This, all this stuff. So all this has to be thought about. So I think what would be good is to see a lot of investment into research, proper research, so we can start figuring out what would be the evidence-based approach here. Uh, working together, I think conflict, I, I'm, I think there's just too much of it. I think anger won't solve this. Yeah. Throwing stones at the problem won't solve this. We don't need people in the trenches throwing shit at the problem anymore. We've enough of that. So we now need to step up. I hope my research is supportive in this. I'm going to put everything I have into it. And I hope that early prevention can be a research model. That And already the the Lust for Life research we've done with UCD and DCU has shown incredible uh, benefits for young people. But I just want to do something. What I'm actually researching is not just the effect, the efficacy of the program, I'm researching how difficult it is to get programs like this into the system mm. and how, why is there resistance? What are the obstacles and how do we remove them? And every single person I know who cares greatly for this will work with any politician. Mm. They will work their arses off um, to deliver a better system. They will. And there are people, but I do think research has to start being funded properly for this. Um, and I also think 
you know, it becomes very easy for us to be angry with the HSC all the time. It's such a huge organization. It is so massive and so layered and so bureaucratic that I actually, I genuinely do have sympathy for them because they're looking at this going, I don't even know where to start, you know? And we only Um, have so much energy in a day. We can't use it to constantly just be angry at the problem. No. We need to actually conserve for our own mental well-being. We need to conserve that energy and direct it towards being compassionate towards the problem and collaborative in and believe, and, and, yeah, an ambition believe for a there's solution. A solution. Believe there is, mm. there's because you haven't seen one yet, yeah. and you're never getting a perfect solution to mental health. You'll never. Yeah. It's so subjective. Everybody has a different reason for whatever way they're feeling or dealing with life. You'll never solve this perfectly. You just won't. But what we can do is is make a damn good attempt at making sure most people that find themselves in 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 overwhelm are being traumatized. That we have. We have a way of coming together here. I don't know what that is either. I'm not arrogant enough to think I know the solution here, but I am truly believing that it, I know I know the answer isn't isn't what we have. I know that. And that has to be the starting point. And I look at it and I I, I say to parents, you know, parents are also skilled with far more understanding of emotional intelligence and mental health now than we were 20 years ago. So I would also say to parents, don't fear every single thing. There's a fear factory that we've created for parents where we say, oh, my God, if your child isn't perfectly conventional, then there's something wrong with them. We need to get away from that. Your kids are going to be anxious at time, from time to time. You know, what, what you need to do, I think the best word of advice I would give the parent is keep that really strong bridge of communication between emotion, validate their emotions. Like my nephew, Billy, went through a really anxious period. And I said to him, I tell you what, Billy, you know what I'm going to do? I said, there's two stories I tell about him that kind of really feed into my work. One of them was, I said, I'm going to pick you up from school. He loves me picking him up from school. But I said, yeah. I'm going to pick you up every Friday, but I'm not allowed to talk for 15 minutes. You need to talk. I'm not allowed it at all. And he would sit in the back seat and I would time him and he would just start to talk mm-hmm. and it started to come out. He goes, do you know, Niall, did you, do you ever get scared when you're in school that your, your mom wasn't going to pick you up? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I did actually. I remember that. I remember thinking, oh, what if she... Because, yeah, I'm always worried that my mum my won't pick me up from school. And rather than go, ah, don't be silly, Billy, of course she is. I went, yeah, that would be scary. I tell you what, though, I'll give the teacher my number. So if it ever does happen, I'll be here. Bang. Problem solved. Listened to him. Gave him space. Didn't make him feel silly. And then the other thing was during the pandemic, it's the funniest, it's kind of a funny story. But I was, I was cocooning my mum and dad and... Nobody was allowed in the house, obviously. But Billy, one day my sister came to the window and he goes, oh, my God, he's he's wrecking my head. Like every parent, her head was wrecked. Like yeah. he's wrecked, he's bawling out in the car. Like he's hysterical. I don't know what's wrong with him. I said, can I go out and talk to him? She goes, yeah, go on. So I went out and I said to Billy, what's wrong with you? Like, are you all right? He just started to scream. I want to hug my granny. That was it. And I want to move to Australia, he kept saying, because he'd, he'd read in the news, saw in the news that, they had in a lockdown. I just want to hug me. That's all he kept saying. And I went back into my sister and went, that's the type of nephew you want. He's emotionally connected. He's emotional. He's expressive. You know, listen to him, validate it. Don't make him feel stupid or tell him not to feel something he already feels. And I just said to him, Billy, you know, it's not always going to be like this. That was enough for him. He goes, I know. And he goes, I hope you're looking after granny. That was it. That was it. That's what you want a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, nine-year-old to be. It's emotionally connected. 
is able to express that emotion, to give them a platform to talk about it. And I think that's a good starting point for a parent. And don't believe every thing is a bad thing. Like I used to eat stones in the back garden and worms covered in shite. Like, you know, my mother, <laughs> like you can imagine that now. Be, oh my God, there's something. Wow. We've become so sanitized, like, and yeah. we become so afraid of our parental choices being judged and ridiculed and criticized. Yeah. And, but I think that's also because we were brought up in a time where we had to be perfect. And mm -hmm. now we're learning, we're learning to lean into life not being perfect as parents because that is an impossible standard to have. And that is probably where most of our anxiety is coming from. But what you said earlier about if we are coming out of this, you know, period of time, feeling burnt out, feeling just beaten and done and frazzled and overwhelmed and everything to to accept that that is true and that is right. And I think as a parent, I'm trying to learn how to also apply that to how my children feel on a day to day mm -hmm. basis and to take it back, you know, to take this conversation back into the hands of parents to help them help their kids with the daily normal, like right feelings and emotions and expressions of life, because life is going to keep happening for our children. Mm -hmm. But you see, you see, this is the other thing I think about a lot. And Louise, my partner, talks about this a lot. You know, in the 80s, as soon as I had even a, a tiny little bit of snot in my nose, my mum was like, we have to put you on an antibiotic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, maybe maybe let my immune system figure out, can I beat this first before you start feeding me full? And I think we do that with kids, not with medication, but more with the fact that we, we think we have to fix all their problems. Yeah. The psychological immune system that we're trying to build in them, that they, they, have to, they have to have, they've had more challenges now than any other kids we had probably even. And I think rather than see it as oh my god it's 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 really impacted them maybe they've built a really powerful level of inner resilience because of what they've gone through they, they haven't come out unscathed no doubt about like there's definitely things but maybe the next challenge that inevitably comes the way when they get older they go well i can deal with this because i dealt with that pandemic thing mm. and i was able i got through that and i think you learn to do that and i think as a parent it's being able to decipher the difference between something that is dysfunctional and something that's really impeding on a person's life or something that's just a normal feeling of, you know, I always say to my mates who are parents, I'm like, what are your intentions? And they're like, to be good parents, I went, that's enough. So I think sometimes we can know too much and it can drive serious levels of anxieties and fears. And also as parents, of course, you're anxious as well. I mean, a shit few years, lads. It's, it's, it is being really overwhelming for, and, and anyone who hasn't been overwhelmed by it really was lucky because... I was, I mean, I lost my entire livelihood over the whole thing. You know, I, I didn't know I was living with my parents, for God's sake. It's not yeah. really what you want to do in your late thirties, but that's yeah. where I was for two years. I was terrified. My uncle died of COVID the first fucking week of the thing. I was watching all this play out and realized at the end of it all, I hadn't processed any of this yeah. and went back into therapy because I was just like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to hold all or deal with this. So these are the realities. We're humans. And we are all a bit messed up if we were honest with each other. And I think our kids are often just mirrors of that. Mm -hmm. But I do think, don't underestimate the strength of a child or their ability to deal with this stuff. Just listen to them. 
give them. That's what I teach with mindfulness with children. I don't teach meditation. I teach them the language of emotion. Tell me how you feel. Where are you feeling it in the body? Here's a little trick that can help you deal with it. Don't tell them to avoid that feeling. Don't tell them not to be sad or not to be anxious. Be that shit. That's that's part of life. But I tell you what, when you feel anxious, talk to me about it. And here's a little thing that I do when I get anxious. Make it relatable. Make it feel like they're not going on. Like, don't, you know, I used to look at mindfulness cartoons. It was like a teddy bear or a fucking cow. And like, I don't, I want them to be the child. I want them to relate to another child or to me. And that's what I do with the mindfulness uh, stuff that I, I work with. I just give them ways of relating to the world in a way that doesn't overwhelm them as much. To really help them be safe in their emotions, we have to learn also to be safe in ours. Totally. And understand that avoidance is the root of all disorder. You can't avoid shit that makes you uncomfortable. It's a big phrase you hear a lot in, in society now, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, well, tough. You know, there's a difference between uncomfortable and being unsafe. It's not the mm-hmm. same thing. Being uncomfortable, somebody says something, you're uncomfortable. Okay, okay, just, that's going to happen to you. You're exposed to billions and billions of people every single day. You're going to see things that are going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to read things that make you uncomfortable. You're going to experience things that make you uncomfortable. But you can't avoid that. And actually our incessant need to try and avoid discomfort is actually driving more of it. And I think that's an important thing to say. And and part of that discomfort, for example, is anxiety. Nobody likes it. I don't like feeling anxious but it's part of life and I'm never going to avoid it. I'm going to have shit days. I'm going to have difficult relationships. I'm going to have other stress. I'm going to lose people I love. That's part of our life's journey. So I think it's important that we don't avoid that pain when it comes up and don't tell kids to avoid it either. To finish on empowering parents who might need or want to feel like they can impact a solution for our children's mental health system, in Ireland, what, if anything, can they do to try and be part of the solution? They're really powerful. Like, don't underestimate your power as a voter of in a, an electorate of what many vote, vote two and a half million in this country. Mm-hmm. Every vote's powerful. Make your local politicians realize you care greatly about this area. Make them realize this is politically expedient. There are votes in this. If you don't change this we will use this as a core reason for why we're not voting for you that's the only way you'll get politics to actually really look at this area but then they have another issue that they have to deal with is actually changing that system and and engaging and the hsc are gonna have to want to as john farley said change this system but i think make this political and don't make it angry or stone throwy to say i actually am i'm going to vote on this so if you can and also as we know with politicians, they're great at promising things. So we're going to have to create a structure of accountability that we're happy with. Uh, and that doesn't mean people lose their jobs or we, you know, this type of stuff. It's just that if you're committing to doing this, if you do not deliver by this, you know, there has to be an accountable reaction to that. And yeah, I think that as parents, please, 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 tell your local politicians that you care about this because that's the only thing I think we're going to see a catalyst um, and let this be the catalyst. And, you know, and also to point out there are really good people in these, this system and there are people who've had really positive experiences with this system, but there are far too many who haven't. And that's something we can't tolerate. 
And we don't know what's ahead for any of us. We don't know what's ahead for any of our children. What we want to do is to raise them in the safe knowledge that there is a system that can support them if and when they ever need it. And that is my motivation. That is that is why I wanted to have this conversation. I can only control so much. And when I can't, I want to feel like there is a viable, effective, operational system there that can swoop in and do what I can't do for my child, mm-hmm. which is support them in their whatever health need that is, whether it is physical or, me- or mental. The report scared me. Yeah, yeah. It, did. It, scared, it scared a lot of people and it scared a lot of parents. And I understand that. And I'm actually very, a lot of empathy towards parents right now dealing with this stuff. And I, I just think, it is important to end this and knowing that there is mm. there is a way and there are people willing to work on that. They just need to be empowered now to deliver that. Yeah. And um, hopefully in four years time, I can stand over a piece of research that can ha- help contribute to that. But right now, as you said, there's an immediate need too. Mm. And we gotta, we, we got to stand up that immediate need and really stop these waiting lists, these inabilities to create assessments for children this conflict that seems to always exist between everybody all the time, not going to solve this one. I tell you that for sure. Certain it will, it will require bravery and it will require serious leadership, but um, it won't happen if we start pegging shit at each other again. It's just not going to happen. Thank you for dedicating your career to this amongst right. other things, but you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a mission of yours, you know, but you're putting the hours in, you're putting the time in, you're putting the proof in. You're not just saying, I'm just going to talk about mental health. You're actually living it. I'm living it because I went through it. Like, I, yeah. I feel, I truly feel what would have been different. If but I you're educating it. yourself and you're you're creating this research and you're part of the change. And I want you to know, like, it is appreciated. It is oh, very, very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your time. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. And a huge thank you to Nal Breslin for giving me his time and the dedication he has to fixing this for our children, whoever may need it. You can learn more about his work at nalbreslin.com or at Brezzy on Instagram. I would love to hear your feedback and your experiences of this stretch. So get in touch as always on at Stretch Marks Podcast on Instagram. And I will talk to you again next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.